If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And let's open in prayer. Father, we come again helpless, dependent upon you to speak through your word this morning. And Father, we want to hear you. We want to know you. We want to know your ways. We want to walk in your ways. All God's people said, Amen. If you remember when we started in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we were focusing on that fact of walking worthy of our calling. We were to walk in love as he walks in love, to walk in light as he walks in light, to walk in wisdom as he walks in wisdom. And then we saw that if walking in wisdom, how wives are to submit to their husbands and how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. As we continue with that, we've been talking about that, that harmony and walking. As we walk in wisdom, it's, it's walking in harmony. And that's how a husband and wife walk. And as we continue today, we're going to see how it is for a family. What honors God? What should we do? And what should it look like? And, and that's really important. And finally, masters. How are we to walk with our masters? In that case, we don't use that term but our bosses, our relationships in our workplaces. And that's important. And as we finish today, then next week we'll start three weeks on spiritual warfare. Now you guys never have a problem battling in the spirit, do you? Is anyone? Yeah, it, it's an ongoing thing. And I was thinking about how much I need to be refreshed, reminded that God is still on the throne. And the battle is whose? The battle is whose? The Lord's. And that's something that we forget. And we battle in our flesh. We battle in our flesh with our wives, with our husbands, with our bosses, with our children. And that doesn't honor God. And it never really resolves problems. Well, I'd like to share an illustration where we've come from. It's an illustration really about a husband and wife. It starts this way. The two rivers flow smoothly before they merge. But when they flow together, they often become tumultuous. Each river has its own current, which collides with the current of another river. This creates a powerful undercurrent and spectacular rapids. As the river flows downstream, the collision of the currents subsides. A new river emerges. It's broader, it's deeper, it's more powerful. So as it is with a good marriage, forming one new union out of rough water at first. But as the currents of life merge, the two become broader, deeper, and more powerful. The two truly become one. As a husband and wife imitate God, he blesses their lives with godly unity, and the two become closer to him, and they become closer to one another. From a marriage, oftentimes comes a child. And sometimes we have those rapids in our lives with the kids. The Bible reminds us that, that children 
are a blessing from God. But sometimes at the moment, it doesn't seem like a blessing. But they are a blessing because God uses them in our lives to form the character of us as moms and dads, but also the children. Well, look at the text with me today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 will begin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on this earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not in the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether a slave or a free. And masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their masters and yours are in heaven. There is no partiality with him. If our faith in Christ is real, it will prove itself in the way that you and I live our life out in our relationships at home, our relationship with those around us, and in our workplaces. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because if you and I are being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, there is no more battling. If there's a battle raging in your heart or my heart uh, between one or two people or a group of people, it is not of the Lord. And everything that you and I go through, God says he's going to use it for good. And oftentimes, he even leads us into difficult situations that we can see our own hearts, our own actions, our own attitudes, and then give us an opportunity to confess and repent to him first, and oftentimes to that other person. There's an illustration that affected me a long time ago. It's actually a little Jewish video clip on marriage. And, and if I would just take out just the words that caught me is, why not just say you're wrong? That's hard, isn't it? We, we laugh at that. But it, I was wrong. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And those are some of the most difficult words in our life. I was wrong. God calls us to a life of humility, a life of submission to one another. In fact, in Ephesians 5.21, it's not on your thing there, we're reminded that we are to submit to one another, come underneath one another not to lord over, not to worry about whether we win or who's in control, but to love one another. 
is to submit to one another and glorify God. Look again in verse 1 of our text today. We see submission of the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, not only it means children have the responsibility to obey, but it also means that parents have the responsibility to teach the things of the Lord to their children. When they walk, when they talk with them, when they lie down, they are instruct them in the things of the Lord. And that's important to remember when we look at this text. It's the things that are in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't mean children are to obey their parents in everything that they say. Because again, if their parents were immoral or do immoral things or teach them to steal, they're not to obey. So as the children have this responsibility to obey in the Lord, parents have that responsibility to teach the children in the Lord. And you might say, well, I'm a grandparent. But you can sit down with your kids, your kids, no matter how old they are, and still talk to them about the things of the Lord. Tell them what God is doing. You can sit down with your grandkids and read them a story or open the Bible and read the Bible and put it in terms that they can understand. We, as grandparents, have a responsibility as well. We need to teach our kids to obey because it's right. It's the right thing. It's right with the Lord. When you teach your kids to obey you, you're teaching them to function in this society, to follow the laws of this society, to submit and function as one. Yet, the things that we follow are the things that are in the Lord. Obedience is something that must be taught, not with a a big stick that you're going to whack them, but with discipline, the scripture says. Now the word simply means to hear, hear under, hear under authority. It means to hear under authority with a, a listening ear, unhesitating attention. Let me stop there for a second, because when we come and we want to hear a message, we're come with a listening ear. Listening to what God is going to speak. Not what Ron is going to say, but how does it line up with the scripture? Asking the Lord, and when the Lord speaks, that we too are to obey. Because when we teach our kids to obey, we're teaching them also to obey our Heavenly Father in the things of the Lord. Obedience involves recognition, recognition of authority. And we're a generation that does not like authority. In fact, we can find all kinds of fault with authority, but the Lord teaches us to submit to authority. And we're going to see this, especially with masters in a moment, as long as it does not conflict the word of God. Now the verb is in, again, what we call a habitual, it's something that's ongoing that we are to continually obey. 
It's interesting as I read this verse again, and I've read it many times and, 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 and was studying at this time, and all of a sudden it's like the Lord spoke to me. I'm still to honor my mother at 94 years old. And when I begin to think a little longer, I get to because it's something that I learned when I was young. So this is something that even will apply to you and me and our parents and putting ourselves under them in the things of the Lord. Because for some people, it's just, they still speak the things of the Lord to you, to me. Mark 9.42 says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he had been cast into the sea. You know, if we lead our kids astray, how sad it is. This is what God says would happen. It would be better for us have that millstone. A millstone is a huge stone. It's very heavy, several thousand pounds in, in many cases, hung around your neck and down at the bottom. This is how he values kids. And he's not just talking about any kids at all. But even at our own age, we can stumble our younger generation with hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another thing. Notice again the phrase is in the Lord. It also tells us why and, and what the child is to obey. The things that are in the Lord. Children to obey their parents. Again, obeying the parents is right. It's pleasing unto the Lord. Therefore, they are to obey. And anything that, that pleases the Lord is something that you and I are to do. Look at verse 2. We see the word honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. To honor a father to a mother is to revere them, to show respect, to honor. This is a, a quote coming all the way back to Exodus 20, verse 12. Notice on the screen, honor your father, your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you and was repeated also in Deuteronomy 5.16. In fact, it's 10 times it speaks and addresses this to the family, honor. It's interesting that he says, honor them, not love them. Husbands are to, to love their wives, but, but the kids are to honor their parents. Again, and it's important to understand that that word honor it means to set an estimate, to fix a value upon. is to, again, accurately assess honestly that person, esteem them with respect, with reverence, with kindness and courtesy and obedience. Obedience is a duty. Obedience is really an attitude. Obedience is something is born out of love tragically and, and it's a, it, today that we see that, that kids are talking back to their parents cutting uh, their parents down ignoring and grumbling and, and disregarding their instruction putting off instruction speaking disrespectfully not listening acting as they know it all calling their parents acute but disrespectful names you know the child that does this grows up and he still acts that same 
way when he gets older? If we do not teach them the importance of obeying, notice the generation we're raising up. In fact, this is the generation again that Second Timothy is talking about again when he describes the end times are difficult. Children are disobedient to parents, but not only disobedient to parents, to every form of authority. And again, we're to have respect for the position. We not, may not always respect what they do or their choices, but we have to understand that God is the one that raises up and God is the one that takes them down. Look at verse 3. Notice again why. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on this earth. Wow, that's a promise. If kids are taught to obey and they obey and they honor the parents, they'll live a, a long time. Notice again, though, in Psalm 116, 15, for those that die and when they die, whether it be a child or adult, notice again, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the godly ones. Precious. When God sees them, can you imagine closing your eyes in this world and open your eyes to Jesus? Wouldn't that be the most incredible thing? Open your eyes to a world where there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no anger, no unforgiveness, bitterness, the list goes on, immorality, abuse to the one that died for you on the cross. To see the prince in his hand, in his side, in his feet. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the godly ones. Now the command for children to honor their father and mother, it's quoted five times in the New Testament on on this passage. Notice again though in verse 4 of our text today, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Notice again, fathers, the context though is it's, it's parents and it can apply to women as well, but it's primarily men that provoke their kids. It's thinking back at the time of Christ. You and I cannot comprehend what I'm going to say next, but it was rare that a family, even a wealthy family in Rome in that period of time would have four or five kids. It was rare. And most of the population at that time, 60% of the population were slaves. Two kids were about what they wanted, and especially if they were boys. That was what they wanted because the boys then could go and work and support them later on. So when the child was born during that period of time, it was never put a part of the family in the very beginning. The child was born... And then the child would be brought to the father. And the father would look at the child and he'd go, or down, just as Caesar would. Culture was so different. In fact, the father was the head of the house forcefully, the authoritarian, and when he spoke, that was it, and no one could say anything, and it wasn't in the Lord. These same people that were coming to the Lord, the the Ephesians that he's speaking to, remember Paul, his missionary journey was to the Gentiles first. 
while there were Jews, but there were Gentiles and this was their means. This is the way that they would live and it was very common for them to provoke, again, provoke their own children. So he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. They would tear them down. They would trash them. They would find fault with them. Often you see that same thing even today if you've gone to a baseball game. When I went to my son's t-ball game many years ago, there was a father that just yelled and screamed and every time that kid missed something, he just yelled and crushed him and crushed that spirit. Provoke them. can be in many different ways. Sometimes your kids will just do things, your grandkids will do things that that really kind of irritating. I heard the story of a, an artist, a famous artist, and when he was a child, he was left with his sister to watch. And his sister was out playing, and he, he looked and he found some of the different inks, different color inks of, uh, to draw pictures with. And he was very young at the time, and he, and he took the inks and he drew this beautiful picture of his, his sister. And of course, the ink spilt all over everything. And when the mom came home, She looked at the mess and she looked at the picture and she picked it up and she says, that is just like Sally. So beautiful. And he encouraged him and he became a famous artist. There are ways to speak to our kids, but we also need to discipline them, but we need to discipline them in love And we need to be encouragers to help them grow and become everything that God would have them be. The Greek here speaks of simply, do not make your children angry. And generally that happens is when we are angered. When we are in the flesh, when we have lost control, we begin to lash out, we begin to dump upon. That's what we're not supposed to do. We're not to provoke them not to draw them into a battle, not to criticize them where they're just torn apart, where they don't even want to try anymore. Well, there's eight things I want to point out about our Heavenly Father, because whenever we are in this life and we have children, they look at us and they learn about our Heavenly Father. What do we want them to see? Well, our Heavenly Father, we learn in in John 17 that He is righteous. And we need to be righteous in the way that we deal with them. We also learn that our Heavenly Father is holy. And we need to be holy and not hypocritical. We need to be pure and set apart for God. And thirdly, heavenly, our Heavenly Father is in heaven. And the way that we deal with our kids needs to be heavenly. We need to use the scripture. We need to deal with them in the scripture and love and teach them how to work through things. Our Father is also a Father of all mercies. And every one of us need mercy in our life, and we need to be merciful to our kids. Do our kids know us as a Father of mercy? Some fathers I know, as soon as the father comes home, the, the kids cringe. They're fearful. Father, reflects the glory of God. Our Father in heaven is a God of glory and we, we should reflect the glory of God when they see us. 
the way we deal with them. Our God is a forgiving, loving, gracious, merciful God. And we need to deal with our kids in that same way. He's also a father of spirits. And if we're ever going to correct our kids, it needs to be in the spirit, not in the flesh. Our father is a father of lights. And certainly the way that we deal with our kids, the way we raise them, we need to be walking in the light and shining that light and pointing them back and even correcting them with the very word of God. Our Father is the Lord in heaven and we need to lift them up to heaven. Again, while in that pagan world at that time, Understand that the fathers, again, and, and I'm talking in the pagan world, not so much the Jewish world, they had unquestioning authority. And now that Paul is teaching, it is a total new revelation. It is a standard that they are to raise the kids, no longer beating their kids, but rearing them in the education and the things of the Lord. Well, again, Paul makes it clear the father's authority over the children does not allow unreasonable demands. Unreasonable, again, restrictions that might drive the children to anger, despair, and resentment. I've known parents that have sometimes been so strict with their kids and their kids go away to college, and as soon as they go into college, they're a different kid. They're going to try everything and anything because the parents have been so restrict. As a parent, our, our goal is to teach them the things of the Lord and teach them the process of how to make a decision. So when they go on their own, they make those decisions in the Lord. They lean and trust on the Lord. Now again, that word provoke, it's, it's important to understand. It's to rouse a wrath. And sometimes even a look, stink eye can raise it up. They know they're really in trouble. Again, we're not to exasperate as, as some, again, translations use. But we're to not to be over controlling of the kids, as I said, or under controlling of our kids. But we're to have a consistent lifestyle a lifestyle that teaches them the things of the Lord. Look at verse 4 for a second. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Well, it means to nourish them up to maturity, to bring them up, to rear them up. So our goal as as a parent is to bring them up in the things of the Lord. There was a family many years ago that was um, that I knew in this this family he says I, I you know I don't, I don't want to have to make the kids go to church I'm not going to make them to go to church I'm not going to tell them about the Lord I'm, they're gonna, if they if they're going to to know the Lord they had to find it out on their own and that's not what God would have us be as a father you are the spiritual leader you are to read the word with them you are to go through devotions with them. When you to correct them, you are to correct them with the Word of God. And even when you are a grandpa, you can sit with your kids. That's one of the most important things to say to your kids when you've been wrong. I've 
been wrong. Forgive me. Because the world all in all will not say that. And if they do not see that from us as fathers or grandparents, where are they going to see those principles? After they get to a certain age, it is too hard sometimes to reach them because they're so tainted by the world. Our responsibility again is to nurture them, to raise them up in the things of the Lord, to train them, to discipline them, teach them what is morally right and what's morally wrong and why it's morally wrong. Teach them that process that God wants the best for. Teach them who God is. And Trench says this about the word. It is the training of the word by the word of encouragement, which is sufficient also for reproof, blame, okay, and where may be required, set over against the training, the act of discipline. We, we need to train them. The word itself is sufficient. When we talk about 2 Timothy, it tells us again what is right, what is wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. We find the answers in the Scripture. The Scripture teaches how we are to train them. But there's a time, see, at that time it's too late. If you haven't taught them that principle of reasoning with them and why we do that, it is no longer good. Hebrews 12.11 says this, All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. I read a, a story of a, a little girl and her father, and the father disciplined the girl, and she stomped off, I'm mad, and I don't love you. How many have heard that from your kids? I don't love you. Anyone else? I, I think all of us probably have. And the little girl runs off into a room, and she comes out later on, and, and, and she hugs her dad, and she says, you know, um, Dad, I really do love you. And I know that you just want me to do what's right. Give our kids some credit. If you raise them in the Lord, they will recognize what is right. But sadly, when we become adults, sometimes the Lord might discipline us because we're not walking at His will and we refuse to acknowledge it. And then when He does it, God, why did you let this happen to me? We need that childlike spirit again. Lord, I know because you love me that you've allowed this to happen to me. God disciplines us because he loves us. God disciplines us because he wants to bring us back to him and he wants to use us to reach others for his glory. Proverbs 19.20 says this, Listen to the counsel. Accept Discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Look with me in verses 5 through 9. We're going to see a a change. Walking in harmony is really a result of a a spirit-filled life. Verse 5 again says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh in fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart and as to Christ, not by the the way of eye service or men-pleasers, but the but as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service and as to the Lord and not to men and knowing whatever good 
thinking each one does, this he also received back from the Lord, whether a slave or free. Spirit-filled life produces really the right perspective. The right perspective. See, the, the Christian slave, the, the Christian worker, that's us if we're working in a business. We submit to our employers. We, we do the things that they ask us to do in the flesh. Now, this flesh, the word is here, is not meaning something that's carnal or something that's immoral, but and this is just in, in the humanity. In the job, it's sense. If you worked for Burger King or McDonald's, they're going to tell you what to do and you just do it. It's the right thing to do. It's not a moral issue. It's what we do. We, we get to do what's right. It's only when they ask us to do something that is not pleasing unto the Lord, that's when we don't do those things. Now, the term again, obedient refers to this Again, continuous, again, continuous, uninterrupted submission to our bosses. Now, the problem is that the generation we raised up, that includes me, sometimes we're smarter than the boss. Anyone ever feel like you, you know, oh, no, we're not even going to go there. It's true that sometimes people have been promoted that have never should have been promoted, but they're put there because of politics. But we're also there to glorify God. We're there to honor Him. We're there to be the very best employee. We're there to be a witness and testimony of of really who God is. Again, it, it involves this important obedience as a witness. Acts 4, 19 and 20 It says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, this is the the Jewish leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And of course, they're speaking about Jesus. They were sharing Jesus and the religious Jewish leaders said, don't use his name. Don't speak his name. And they knew the right thing was to speak even though they were to be in submission to those religious leaders, but not now, because that was not God's will. That was not pleasing not to speak. Here's a difficult one. The persecution around the world, the persecution Christians, don't mention Jesus. Don't share your faith or they'll cut off your head. They'll throw you in prison. We decide to speak Jesus no matter what. What happens if persecution comes to this country? For now, we're obedient to our leaders. But if they say you can no longer proclaim the name of Jesus, what will you do? Will you still proclaim Jesus? The one that proclaims Jesus is the one that's doing unto the Lord. That is the mark of a true believer. So there is a time again to submit and there's a time not to submit. In fact, 1 Peter 2.18 says, servants in this case, be submissive to your masters. Notice how, with all respect, 
Not only to those who are good and gentle, but those who are unreasonable. And all of us have had unreasonable bosses. And if you're in an unreasonable situation, you pray and you ask God, God, show me what you want to do. Show me if I am to leave, but make it clear that it is of you and not me just wanting to exit stage right. And we pray and we wait and we worship and we continue focusing and God will show you what he would have you do. Verse 19 continues, for this finds favor. It is for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under the sorrows and suffering unjustly. I know in my own life, I've gone through a situation when I was no longer employed for myself, working for somebody that was very unreasonable, unjust, but yet I had to pray, God, what do you want me to do? If you want me to go, I'll go. If you want me to stay, I'll stay. That's the heart that he is forming in you and me. This is not what we want to hear, but this is the heart that he's forming in you and me. Are you willing to do his will no matter what those consequences are? That is what the the Christian is confronted with. Yes, we submit. Children submit and obey the things of the Lord. We submit to our bosses. We submit to our government in the things in the Lord, the things that are not moral issues. But when they violate God's principle, then we can no longer submit and do those things because those things are not pleasing unto the Lord. The spirit-filled life produces a right commitment, a right commitment. Notice in verse five, it's from the sincerity of the heart. It's not hypocritical. It's not superficial, but it's genuine. It's real. And it's through our life. People need to see us that we are real, we're honest, we're sincere. When you open the Word, when you speak to them, they have to know that you believe in the God of the heaven and the earth. They have to believe that he is coming and he's coming again. And we don't know, and we're not going to fix dates. But any one of us today could leave this place today and could be our last day. That we want to make sure that our life is right with him and that we hear those words, good and faithful servant. And when our heart is right, then when we submit to others, it won't be, I'm going to do this but in sincerity of heart because we're doing it and we're doing it unto the Lord. A spirit-filled life produces right motives. Right motives. Notice those words, as to Christ. If you have an unreasonable boss and he's not asking anything to do uh, that is wrong or immoral, he's just unreasonable. We, we, when we submit, we submit unto Christ. It's to God that we're doing that because we want to glorify God. We recognize, God, you've put us here. I don't understand, but I know that you are on the control. You can change this person's heart. You can change my heart. If there's something I need to see, you can show me. So again, that spirit-filled life is one again. It has that right motive. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory 
of God. Now, we all know that verse, but how often do we think about whatever we do? This is to the glory of God, not flippantly. We're here. You know the reason you're here today? is not just to hear from God, but to glorify Him, to magnify Him. And to know Him is you want to know and you want to walk in His ways. And when you go out of this place, you want others to know Him. And when you go to work, you want to glorify Him. In your marriage, you want to glorify Him. And when you talk with your neighbors, you want to glorify Him and you look for opportunities to share the faith. Everything that happens in your life is not by accident. You have a choice to choose to honor God, to glorify God, to trust and do it His way or do it your way. What if I would have chased that man out of there just for that parking place? What kind of witness would that have been? What kind of witness would it be as if I were arguing and fighting with my boss before all the other employees. All we do, we do to the glory of God. The spirit-filled person is is a person, again, if we're going to walk in harmony, we need to be this spirit-filled person who walks in sincerely obedient to their employers in, in, in Christ. And be the best employee, not, not again just doing it when they're there, but doing it when they're not there. Doing it unto the Lord. Paul's speaking again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But just as, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the hearts. You can go through all the motives in the world and everybody can think you're the sweetest, nicest guy or gal and you can be rotten to the core and God knows it. You can't pull anything over God's eyes. God knows your heart. God knows your motive. I don't know anyone else's motive. And I've said this before and I I think you understand I don't even know my own motives sometimes. Stop and think about it. When you do something, why do you do what you... Sometimes it's a reaction from our flesh of our old sinful nature. First Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but again to those unreasonable we saw. Again, look at verse 9. Again, we need to be spirit-filled and it it produces, again, an employee who is submissive to their employers. Again, verse 9 says, "And and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening and knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Well, masters, in turn, need to do what is right with their employees. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ who you serve. See, we're doing the right thing. Masters need to also be doing the right thing Christians are asked to remember only 
there's one audience. What is that audience, anyone? Christ. You do it only for Christ. That's all that really matters. When it's all said and done, there's only one thing that matters. What have you done for Christ Jesus? We're not to play second fiddle for someone else, a secondary audience. We're to honor God by living the truth and loving others each day. See, the Spirit-filled life produces believers that walk in harmony with one another. They walk in harmony. Why? Because they're walking in love. They're walking in the light. They're walking in wisdom. They're walking in submission to one another. Wives submit to husbands, and husbands, again, love their wives, and wives respect them. Children obey their parents. Believers submit to, really, to the masters or their bosses. This is the spirit-filled life. This is how you and I walk in harmony. 